It is so good to see each of you here today. We're continuing in our series of messages from 2 Corinthians. I've titled the whole series, This Treasure in Jars of Clay. And I'm sure you will detect that theme throughout the whole letter. Let me start out by admitting that I have a confession to make. And I know it will likely lower my estimation in the hearts of many of you. I don't like the way cilantro smells. I can't help it. I was probably in college before I even ran across cilantro for the first time. And uh, ever since then, from the first moment I ran across it, I thought it smelled like an insect I used to play with as a child, back when I did play with insects. We called it the stink bug. I don't know what the official name of that thing is, but I, I, I honestly, cilantro smells like stink bug to me. To this day, that's what comes to mind when I smell it. And I realize that some of you love it. You can't get enough of it. And I, I get it, you know, you, it's not a taco without cilantro. Not a real taco. I've learned to eat it. The smell still smells like stink bug to me, but I've, I can eat it. Um, Paul uses smell as a way to talk about our lives in Christ. And he points out that the smell of it can be received in very, very different ways. Uh, so let's, let's open this passage today. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. I've titled the message, The Smell of Christ. Let me review just a little bit before we dive into this, uh, the situation as Paul writes this letter of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in many ways, and you probably noticed it already, we're only in chapter two, but you've noticed that Paul is really raw. Um, this is probably the most personal and just open-hearted letter of Paul's letters. Uh, and part of that has to do with the, the situation. Now, he is coming out of his two and a half years of his most effective ministry that we know of in Paul's life. Two and a half years in Ephesus, he's been ministering in power. He's been training up Christian leaders who've been going to the towns around Ephesus and they've been planting churches. The gospel is growing tremendously and God is working through Paul and confirming his ministry in very powerful ways so that uh, even people are taking handkerchiefs that Paul is touched and putting them on sick people and Jesus is healing, healing those sick people to confirm that the gospel Paul is preaching is true and that's the true power of God at work changing human lives and hearts. It's that people have tried to cast out demons in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches and the demon says, well, I, I know Jesus and I'm even aware of Paul, but who are you guys? And the demon turns on them and, and subdues them all and uh, these kinds of things have been happening with this powerful, powerful time of ministry where the gospel has just been spreading and, and people in the city of Ephesus have turned from witchcraft and paganism to Christ and there's been such a transformation. They've even brought all of their books of magic and spells and all this kind of paganism and occultism have burned those books and with a value of 50,000 silver coins, one silver coin was a whole day's wage 
a worth of millions of dollars in today's economy and they just burned them because they would rather have Jesus than what they had been doing before. God has been working powerfully through Paul. It's very surprising to me though that in this letter he doesn't talk about any of those things. Now, his time in Ephesus has just ended, and it ended because uh, there was a, a guy named Demetrius who was a silversmith and kind of a head honcho in the silversmith's guild in Ephesus, and they had the temple of Artemis, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and people came to Ephesus from everywhere to see this glorious temple and the great statue of Artemis and to worship this goddess there, and these silversmiths would make uh, silver idols of Artemis and sell them. Uh, not only to locals but to tourists who would come and there was a lot of money to be made in this and so many people have been turning to Christ that they have no more interest in these idols and uh, Demetrius talks to the guild and says guys we're going to lose our jobs we're going to lose our livelihood people are no longer buying these idols not only that then he appeals more broadly to the whole city and says guys this is the temple of Artemis this is the city of the goddess Artemis that is our identity and these Christians are attacking the very core of who we are and he riles up the whole city. They spend two hours chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Before somebody finally quiets the crowd and disperses it. But very nearly, this riot could have ended Paul's life. And perhaps that's what he's talking about in chapter 1 of this letter where he says, We have been, in a moment, we've just been so utterly overwhelmed, so utterly beyond our strength that we despaired of even living. Paul has come through just, just a sense of utter overwhelm, uh, utter just being pushed far beyond anything he had the strength to bear and has found that Christ is the only reason he's still standing. That's the position he finds himself in as he's left Ephesus and traveled up north and from Macedonia uh, he is writing this letter down to Corinth in Greece. And uh, one of the things he's dealing with in this letter is that there are people in Corinth who are peddling a version of the gospel that's very triumphalist, that's very... Uh, Let's build a name for ourselves. Let's be glorious and let's brag about all the great things we are in Christ. And let's share a version of the gospel that is very appealing to our Roman neighbors who would love nothing more than to accumulate glory and wealth for themselves. Let's share that version of the gospel. And Paul in this letter is very deliberately undermining that completely and rejecting that as a false version of the gospel. That's the background for this letter. And now he's at this point where he's going to start talking about his own ministry. And he's going to do this for a long time. He'll take us through chapter 7. Kind of talking about his own ministry and the things he is doing as a, a servant of Christ, an apostle of Christ, somebody who's sent by Christ, an envoy. He begins by saying, uh, let's start in verse 14. But thanks be to God to the one who is always leading us in triumphal procession in the Christ and making known through us the aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. First thing Paul has to say about his life and ministry in Christ is thank God. 
God deserves our thanks. And it's interesting that, that, God, that Paul starts there, given that he's coming out of this sense of being utterly overwhelmed, and yet through all the hardships he's just been coming through and is still dealing with, and all the suffering and all of the sleepless nights worrying about this and that thing that's going on in the ministry, uh, through all of that he says, thanks be to God, his heart is overflowing with gratitude even in those hard moments of his life. And how to paint a picture of what ministry is like, what successful ministry in Christ is like. Well, Paul chooses to borrow from Roman life for this image. And it's the idea of the Caesar when he's conquered an enemy nation, especially one that's particularly difficult and they've had a hard time subduing. But when they finally manage to subdue this nation, they defeat their armies, they uh, cause them to surrender, and they take over this other nation and annex it to the great Roman Empire. The Caesars or the generals would march this procession through the city of Rome. And they would bring in the slaves of war and they would make sure that at the head of the line uh, they had uh, the most powerful people in the nation they had just conquered. The kings and the nobles and the most outstanding generals would be marched in procession as slaves of war ahead of the Caesar. And they would bring in all of the most valuable things that they had taken from this nation. Their most precious treasures and, and possessions. They would parade all this wealth into the city of Rome as a, a, a display of the glory of the Caesar and more broadly of the glory of his kingdom. That's the image Paul uses. And you might expect that in this image Paul says that's what we are. We ministers of Christ, uh, the world may not see it, but really the truth of the matter is we're the conquering generals in Christ's army and we are taking the forces of evil. I am in Ephesus and let me talk to you about my ministry there, how I have routed the forces of evil and how sickness and demons and all the witchcraft and the falsehoods that have been a part of the city of Ephesus have been vanquished and I am the conquering victor in this fight. You might think that's the image Paul would use, but it's not. You know where Paul places himself in this image of the triumphal parade into Rome? He says, I'm one of the ones that's being led ahead of the conqueror. I'm one of the guys who lost the war and is now a slave, is now a conquered foe, and I go ahead of the conqueror. The victor. And Paul isn't the victor. Paul isn't the conquering general. It's the Christ. And notice they use in the Greek there the article, the definite article. Not just Christ as you would use it as a name. But the Christ. The Messiah. The King of kings and Lord of lords. This glorious king is leading a triumphal parade. And in this triumphal parade... Paul is one of the captured foes who is driven ahead as evidence of the victory of Christ. Boy, that flips it backwards, doesn't it? 
Paul is saying, I'm not the, the guy that's at the head of everything. I'm not the conquering, powerful, glorious victor over everything. I'm the one who lost this fight. Paul has never forgotten that when this all started, he was an enemy of Christ. In fact, when he first encounters Christ, it's when he is traveling from Jerusalem, having requested and obtained authority and authorization to travel to the northern city of Damascus and find any Christians in Damascus and capture them and bring them back as captives to Jerusalem to face trial. That is what he's doing when he encounters Jesus on the way to Damascus. And Paul recognizes that he is fighting God and that he has chosen to place himself as an enemy of the Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the victor over sin and death. He, has, he finds to his horror that he is an enemy of God. Even though he had convinced himself he was fighting on God's side. And Paul knows that all he deserved from the Christ was to be ground into the dust. All he deserves was, is to be executed summarily. He is an enemy. And he understood his walk in Christ as, I was an enemy of God. And yet, and God won the battle. God won the war. I was in this war against my creator, and God won. And now I have been conquered by Christ. And he drives me ahead of him in triumphal procession. I am one more evidence of his lordship, one more evidence of his conquest over sin and death. I lost the war. I sued for peace and praise God. The victor was merciful. And he extended forgiveness and pardon. And he mercifully received me and did not kill me. But if I want to describe what my ministry is about, it's not me going out there and doing all this glorious stuff. Christ is the one doing all of that. I am one more of the spoils of war driven ahead of him. What is this procession doing? Paul says that God, through this procession that's going on, he is in the process of making known through us the aroma of the knowledge of him. You see, those of us who, are, who have been captured by Christ, who have surrendered, laid down arms, sued for peace, and been taken over by him as king and lord of our lives, those of us who are driven ahead of him in this procession, we have come to know God. Not as enemy, but we have entered into a relationship with God mysteriously, gloriously, as Father. We have been received with such warmth and gentleness and kindness as to be made family. Our conquering victor has been so gracious to us that he has allowed us 
to get to know him. He has invited us into relationship with him. So in this victory procession of Christ, we who are driven ahead of him as the conquests of his war, God through us is raising up the aroma, the smell of what it looks like when a human being knows God. We smell like people who have come to know God. And that aroma of the knowledge of him is rising up in every place, all over. So for some people, uh, this has been because God has sent them. Paul, for example, would not have been in Ephesus if it hadn't been because God sent him to go and spread the gospel in all these places. Paul was a missionary sent by Christ into foreign lands to share the gospel. Some, some of those driven before Christ are driven into the world by this sense of calling and, and obedience to Christ. Some of them, uh, it wasn't so much obedience as God had to force them out, as in the church in Jerusalem that was really happy in Jerusalem, and the only way God was able to get them to go to Samaria next door was to cause persecution to force them out of the city. That's the way God's done it with some people. He has moved Christians around the world and used hardship and difficulty and persecution to spread them around. Some of them have done it for uh, commerce. They're merchants and their job means that they're traveling a lot. Some of them are in the Roman army and that job means they're in many different places because of their service in the armed forces. All of these ways in which God is using those who have become conquered by Christ, those who have become his spoils of war, they're spreading throughout the world. And in each of these lives, God is sharing the aroma of what it looks like for a human being to know its creator. Paul is describing our mission. This is the Great Commission. Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all the things that I have commanded you. We whose lives have been surrendered to Christ, we who have been conquered by the victor in this grand war between evil and the righteous God, this uh, we conquered people are going throughout the world sharing Christ. And Paul uses here this metaphor that we are making known the aroma of what it is to know God. And here is another thing. In these processions, oftentimes there would be animals driven ahead and uh, slaves and all this. There might be an unpleasant smell. So there would sometimes be also incense burned as part of the procession to raise a pleasing aroma accompanying the procession. And I think Paul also may have in mind here the idea in Jewish worship that incense was burned in the tabernacle or the temple as a way to re raise a pleasing aroma Roma before God. And Paul will speak of both of these things in these verses. He'll speak of our lives as raising an aroma and how that aroma is received by God and in worship, but also how that aroma is perceived by the world around us. And that's perhaps more the Roman reading of the aroma that would accompany a, a triumphal procession. Missions in this image become Christ's victory parade across the world as we are driven ahead of him as evidence of his victory.
Let's keep reading verse 15. For we are Christ's sweet aroma to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being destroyed. To some, an aroma from death to death. To others, an aroma from life to life. And regarding these things, who is sufficient? So first he talks about this aroma of our lives, how it is perceived and received by God. It is a sweet aroma, a pleasing aroma. So God is pleased by the smell that comes off of our lives, the smell of people who know him. That's a sweet aroma to God. In fact, as we live our lives in this relationship with him and dig into it and lean hard into this knowing of God, the more uh, strong and powerful and beautiful that aroma is. It's a sweet aroma to God. And, and, and Paul says, and, and that aroma is rising up among everybody, among those who are being saved and among those who are being destroyed, those who are on a path to life eternal and those who are on a path to death eternal. That aroma is being perceived by everyone. And notice then how the smell is perceived so very differently based on which of those two groups you're in. If you're one of those who have recognized that you have lost this war, that the victory has already been claimed, Christ defeated sin and death, and will one day eradicate it from creation. So if you have cast your lot with the side of sin, of I'm going to do it my way, God can do his thing, but I'm going to be king of everything in my life, and I'm going to govern everything about myself, and I'm going to win in the end, that battle was already fought at the cross, and we lost there's no way that that's uh, going to f- change because the, the defeat of sin was accomplished by Christ at the, at the cross. So the, the victory has already been won and some of us are, are still fighting a battle that has been won, a war that has already been lost. We are still fighting against God. I'm going to do life my way. I'm going to take the reins of my life and I don't care that you are God Almighty and that you created me by your wisdom for your purposes. I'm going to be living my life for my purposes and whatever I determine is wise in my understanding and I'm going to live that way. We live in this uh, rejection of our creator and the affirmation of ourselves as gods of our own lives. Well, that is a path that only goes in one direction. We experience death and ever more of it. We are people who Paul describes as people who are being destroyed. You see, that's the only thing sin can do for us. Sin cannot heal hurts. Sin cannot mend broken relationships. Sin cannot uh, release you from guilt. We may think it does. We may deceive ourselves. But all sin can do is erode anything good in your life. All sin can do is take something good God gave you and twist it around so that it becomes destructive in your life. And the more we live this life where I'm going to run it, I'm going to do it, and God, you butt out of my life, I'm going to do my life my way, the way I want to do it, all we're going to get is a process of going from death to more death. 
There's nothing to stop that. So the aroma of the lives of those who belong to God, who are in relationship with God, becomes a stench of death. It becomes a reminder that you are on the other side of that and that you have chosen the other side of that war and that you are an enemy of God and the aroma that rises from the lives of those who belong to the Christ is an aroma that is unpleasant because it represents everything you are trying to run from, everything you have rejected, everything you want nothing to do with. And it is a reminder that your life is in the process of being destroyed. And you're committed to that destruction. And it becomes a stench from death to death. To those who have laid down arms, who have sued for peace and found mercy from the Christ. To those of us, uh, this aroma that rises is the smell of life itself. And all it does is get better. It's life flowing into more life. There really are only two trajectories for human living. We are either living evermore or we are dying evermore. And the aroma that rises from the lives of those who belong to Christ is a powerful reminder to both parties of the eternal reality of their trajectories. And hopefully for some, this stench from death to death will be the thing that helps them wake up and realize, I don't want death. All you have to do is sue for peace and you can join the parade. Paul meditates on this, on how Christ is parading his victory across the world by sending out his children as the aroma of the knowledge of God across the earth. And he says, regarding these things, who is sufficient? I think Paul is facing some opponents in Corinth who are trying to sell a version of the gospel that's triumphalist, that's all about parading your own glory before others and claiming to be something really important. We can see hints of this in his previous letter in 1 Corinthians where he talks about people saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of Apollos and I'm of Cephas and everybody trying to identify themselves as being part of some group that raises their status somehow. And Paul is rejecting that approach to the life in Christ. There is only one uh, to be exalted, the Christ. Everybody else is a slave caught captured in war sent before the victor as evidence of his victory regarding these things who is sufficient and and I think uh, many of his opponents here are are proclaiming their own glories and their own knowledge and their own understanding their deep understanding of the mysteries of God and all this kind of arrogance that comes with people who are very confident in their theological acumen If anybody could have bragged, the Apostle Paul could have bragged. We read the New Testament, I think it's very clear, at least to me, that Paul had the most brilliant theological mind I see in the whole Bible. I think his insight and his capacity to synthesize very complex theological concepts and to understand how they interrelated, I think it surpasses Moses. I think it surpasses Isaiah. 
I don't think anybody came close to having the intellectual capacity that Paul had and the insight into the gospel. And let's talk about his uh, ministry uh, credentials, right? Who has done more in terms of laying down his life for the gospel than Paul? Who has encountered more sufferings and more challenges and been faithful to the call as an apostle? Of all the books in the Bible... I had one of my professors, he's been here, Dr. Bruce Corley, uh, the most gifted scholar I know, Christian scholar I know. And uh, he, he says that the book of Romans is the book that has had the most significant impact on the history of the world of any other book. Paul wrote the book that is responsible for the Great Reformation for the fact that there's even such a thing as an evangelical today. Paul wrote that book that through the ages God has used to help people understand the gospel. So Paul could brag, Paul could say, and I'm the expert on all of this, so if you want somebody to explain it all to you, let me lay it all out for you. And there are people out there in the Christian world today who are so full of themselves that they, te they teach theology with that kind of arrogance. Like they've got it all worked out. Just come to me. Let me explain it all to you. Well, notice that the person who had the, the, the most legitimate claim to talk that way, when he says, let me ponder what Christ is up to. Let me explain to you my grasp of what he's up to using this image of the victory procession. Then he says, regarding these things, who is sufficient? This is a rhetorical question. The answer, obviously, is nobody. Who is adequate for such things? Who is up to snuff? Who is capable of man managing and handling these things? What Christ is up to so far exceeds any one of us that Paul puts himself fully in the group of those who are not sufficient. There's something mysterious about the reign of Christ and glorious, so glorious that it exceeds anything we could be adequate to even talk about or handle adequately. Paul approaches this precious work of Christ with such humility and such deference. He has understood, and it's not false humility. He just has understood how great Christ is and how little he is. This is the aroma of Christ in the world. For some, that means evermore life. For some, it means death sealed and delivered. Verse 17, for we are not like many peddling God's message. Rather, as persons of sincerity, as persons coming from God, we speak in the presence of God in Christ. Paul recognizes that there are many people out there who are selling God's message. The word he uses, peddling, that Greek word, it's the idea of selling something, but there's something underhanded about it. Something uh, dishonest about it, a, a peddler, a huckster. That's the idea of the word. 
And here's what many people do, and to this day it's happening. It was happening in Paul's day, and he says it wasn't an odd occurrence. There are many doing this. Today, I can say there are many people who do this. They take God's message. Now, a lot of people take God's message, and they kind of filter out and pick the parts they like. And they'll, they'll keep the parts they like and they'll just discard the rest like so much garbage because they're really not interested in God's message. They're interested in making use of God's message for themselves in, in different ways. But the really crafty ones uh, who are doing this, the really uh, uh, sneaky ones that are doing this, they not only do that, but they say, what are parts of God's message that people are going to want to hear? Let me tease out all the bits and and pieces of it that people are going to like to hear and let me see how I can package this message of God and so deliver it that it results in people giving me their money. There are a lot of people in the world doing this today. And there are a lot of people in the world who have become extremely wealthy, obscenely wealthy doing this. And they package it all as this is God's message. And the bottom line of God's message is give me money and God will do good stuff for you. And the deception is so great and so crafty and so appealing that they even present their own lavish lifestyles and their own extravagance in living this life of opulence based on the stripping of the masses. They bill this as, see, this is what God wants for all of us. If you would just be as great as I am, God would do the same in your life. So just keep giving me your money and keep doing the things I'm telling you and eventually you'll be as wealthy as I am. You'll be as honored as I am. People will come to you and think you're basically God the way you come to me. That's the great appeal of that version because people think someday it's going to be them in that glorious position. Paul says we don't do that. We don't peddle God's message. In fact, the way he describes his ministry almost sounds anticlimactic. It almost sounds boring. We're just sincere people. How do we go about this? We are what we are. There's no facade, there's no uh, glorious presentation, there's no Instagram version of the Christian life, there's just this. What you see is what you get. There is sincerity, there is honesty, there is openness so that Paul is not afraid to say, I despaired of life itself. He doesn't do this thing where he pretends like hurt doesn't hurt. Like being overwhelmed isn't feeling like you're going to drown. He knows it. And he talks about it openly. And yet Christ has carried me through. He didn't pretend. As persons of sincerity. As persons coming from God. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm not the guy who decided one day, I'm going to go across the world and spread the gospel. I'm going to be the grand missionary of the first century. No, he didn't have any plans to do any of that until God said, Paul, I want you to go there. The way Paul has done his ministry is he has been a person God has sent and Paul has obeyed. In fact, God seemed to love taking Paul's plans and throwing them in the garbage. 
None of his plans ever seemed to work out the way he planned them. Paul didn't care. He would go wherever God sent him, do whatever God told him. If that changed his plans completely, then good. Because he didn't want his own plans. He wanted to go out through the world as somebody coming from God. He really wanted to be this conquered foe who was driven before the conquering king in this, his victory procession across the world. That's how Paul saw his ministry. In fact, this life of sincerely and honestly going where God sends him and sharing the aroma of the knowledge of God wherever God puts him. He says, this is not just something I'm doing for the rest of the human race. And Paul deeply loved the rest of the human race. He was giving his life for the rest of the human race. But that wasn't the first love in Paul's heart. He did all of this in the presence of God in Christ. His whole life was a life of worship. It was a life lived before God, lifted up to God as an act of worship to God in Christ. The reason, one of the reasons the gospel is not popular is that it demands that we take our world's value system and throw it out the window. In Paul's day, the Roman value system was, and you're going to be shocked for me to say this, very much like our American value system. Rome uh, had extended this worldwide network of mercantilism and exchange that had brought wealth across the ancient world. Their culture was supposedly the best, superior, and they had extended this across the whole world. And every nation they annexed was just one more uh, expression of the glory and inevitability of the Roman Empire. And they, uh, they projected power and glory as the aspiration. You want to be the one who has Roman citizenship and who has all the privileges and all the honor and the glory that comes with that. And you are in pursuit of the most glory you can accumulate for yourself. What about our culture? What's the American dream? Is the American dream come to this nation because here you can surrender your life to God and you can be the very aroma of Christ in the world? Is that, is that the American dream? Isn't the American dream come here and work hard and make something of yourself and the sky's the limit. You can be as glorious and powerful and important as you choose to be through your own hard work, ingenuity, and stick-to-itiveness. We are a very proud nation. We're very proud of our personal achievements and all that we can accomplish. And we are in pursuit in this country, in this culture, in this nation. Our ultimate pursuit is glory and wealth. That is the value system of the world we're living in, of the nation we are living in. The gospel of Christ is absolutely counter to that. It's not about a pursuit of glory. It's about a surrender to the Christ. We want that. We want the merit. We want to come before God and say, God, you owe me. 
I have earned something of this. I have worked hard and I have accomplished this and my redemption, my restored relationship with you is the result of my hard work and I want to be able to brag about something and here's the difficulty many have with the gospel. The gospel leaves you no room for bragging. You bring nothing. You are a vanquished foe. You are a conquered enemy of God. And it requires us to give up the world's approach to glory and power and influence and choose instead to be a person who goes where God sends him, a person who lives his life as somebody who is coming from God, who lives his life not by projecting some uh, fantasy of the perfect Christian life, but somebody who's living his life simply and sincerely and honestly and openly. And who's living his life as an act of worship in the presence of God in Christ. This world celebrates winners. If you, uh, your team wins the Super Bowl and they come home the town throws a huge party. You are received as the conquering victors. You have established your supremacy and you are worthy of the glory and accolades you receive. Sometimes we want to bring this approach into the Christian life and, and think that that's what we're after as Christians. We are after this pursuit of glorious, victorious uh, splendor. We want to be the winners. We want to be the champions, the ones everybody else wants to be. Sometimes we forget that following Jesus means we've abandoned this world and its values. We're not the conquering heroes. We were the enemies of God who were conquered and granted clemency by King Jesus. He has graciously invited us to participate with him in his victory. But we are his captives of war. Our whole lives are nothing but his victory parade across the world. He marches us out to spread the smell of Christ, the smell of what it looks like for a human being to know his God. For those who turn from sin to Christ, this smell rising up becomes encouragement and strength, a smell from life to ever more life. For those who reject Christ, our lives are going to be a stench, reminding them that they are at war with their Creator, that sin gives nothing but condemnation and death. Hopefully, it'll be a stench that drives them from death to life. We are to serve Christ, to go where he sends us, to do what he sends us to do, and do so simply and sincerely in worship of God. We're going to sing a song. This is our time to respond to what God's been saying to us. Let me ask you to stand, and we have people who are going to help us here at the front, if y'all will come down at this time. But 
This is your time to come and say, God, I've heard your word and I recognize maybe you are an enemy of God. Maybe you are fighting him tooth and nail and today you realize I am never gonna win this fight and I need to surrender because I want life. I've had enough death to last the rest of my lifetime. Let's start living. If that's you this morning, come and share that and let them lead you in prayer to ask Christ to take your life and to be the king and Christ over your life. Maybe you already know him and this has been a reminder that your values have to be completely different from those of the world around you and you have allowed yourself to be conformed to this world rather than transformed by Christ. Whatever God lays on your heart, come, share it with uh, someone here at the front and let them encourage you and pray with you. Come always sing.